Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Garanch Choco, CEO of Coda Societies, a firm that shapes social and economic infrastructures to promote equity worldwide. She has launched social innovation firms, designed and implemented physical spaces, national and local health care systems nationwide, as well as public administration processes, think tanks, and regional economic agendas. Her work has been touched in North America, Europe, Africa, and the Caribbean. Obviously, with someone with such a wide variety of expertise and background, we're primed to have an incredible conversation. So I want to welcome you to the deep dive. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to be having this conversation with you. I've always enjoyed our conversation. So. Exactly. We have a long history of long, meandering, beautiful conversations. And this promises to be in that same vein, maybe a little less meandering, <laughs> because you've done so much work. As I've said in the intro, your work has been global in its perspective. We're both sitting in New York and separate parts of New York, but obviously in the moment that we're in, COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of our lived experiences feel similar despite being in different parts of the world. Similar, but yet different, as they like to say. So I want to start off really broad and give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit of your journey that led up to CODA Societies, because I've known you before that, and I've had the pleasure of seeing that journey, but our listeners haven't. So I want to give you an opportunity to just sketch out what got you to this moment in time. Well, it's, of course, like a long origin story. So as you can hear by my accent, and as you know, Phil, I'm from France originally. I was born and raised in Paris. My mother is from the Caribbean. My father was from Poland. So I lived an immigrant experience in France. And so because of this identity as immigrant, I was forced to look at the society that I was part of. Understanding like is dynamic, understanding like how I was fitting and how I wasn't fitting, and also like understanding the mechanism that were either inclusive of me or you know ensuring that I was excluded. And so like the concept of societies, its design and its dynamic has been a concept that has been part of like my personal, individual, intellectual, and emotional journey. And I always had a fascination with understanding like the different mechanisms through which societies are built. And so I started my career as a concert pianist. I discovered music when I was three years old. That was a way also for me to express my views, my sensibility, my reaction to the social context in which I was. And so in parallel so to piano performance and music in general, I developed you know, some knowledge and education in society building, in political ideology. In France, we have a big tradition of philosophy as well, you know. And so, yes, I brought all of that together and was faithful to both disciplines. I had a chance to go and study in Cuba. It was a place where 
I could witness firsthand societies being built from scratch, right? So based on a specific ideology, having structures in place that represented, that manifested this ideology. And so, you know, I think that as like someone from a Caribbean background, an immigrant background, whose identity is very much like linked to colonization, decolonization, Cuba was a very interesting place for me. Now, like from there, I received a scholarship to go to the opposite of Cuba, <laughs> which is Miami. <laughs> so it was fascinating to see, you know, the other side of the coin. And we'll touch on it later, but I think that seeing, you know, one side and its opposite is very formative. And I went to study with an amazing professor, Cuban piano, like maestro, as we call them, who gave me, you know, transmitted me everything she knew. And then from there, I heard about the concept of Ivy Leagues, so I decided to apply to one, even though everyone had told me that it was going to be an impossible journey. And after much work and much support, I got my master in public policy, public administration, with a big focus on sociology and urban planning at Cornell University. From there, I had a chance to like go in the art of America in Congress to like really understand how like societies are built from the legislative process. So I was working in the office of Congressman Rangel, and that was very interesting because Congressman Rangel at the time was like one of the most progressive figures. And then from there, I worked at like various nonprofits in the cultural art space in D.C. at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Art and others. And realized that I was, you know, like while these organizations were very impactful and powerful, there was something for me that was missing. Because like the idea of like transforming societies had to come from many different sectors, not only from one. And so like I had the luck to like to get a job in New York as director of strategy for nonprofit, and then I stumbled into the innovation industry. And so the innovation industry it was a beginning, you know, of social innovation. But what was fascinating to me was the fact that the private sector was so open, right, to creating new things, new products, new ideas from scratch. And I was thinking. Why don't we use similar process to actually build like structures, to build society, to build a healthcare system, to build an educational system, to build a public space? Why is the concept of creating, of building only, you know, acceptable in a private sector setting? And so I had a chance to be able to start creating like methodology and theories to like use the innovation process, you know, including like design thinking, participatory design, system thinking, and applying it to, to society building. And so I had a chance to like, you know, start touching at urban planning, thinking about like how can we use public space to fight against gentrification. And then from there, like I was exposed to like incredible, like complex seemingly, you know, like impossible to fix type of system. I was working in partnership with the Rapid Result Institute and other organization to like find like avenues for like revenue generation in Brownsville, Brooklyn, a place, you know, that is very low income by design. And I think they will touch on that a bit later too, but I believe that a lot of like society's woes, you know, inequalities, discrimination, oppressive, like, you know, like tactics are man-made, right? And so like, because they are man-made, they can be unpacked, deconstructed, and then rebuilt to actually like bring about a better outcome. So like I was working there and like positioning, you know, the community in Brownsville as a designer's, 
of like solution for themselves of shifting this power structure. Like, you know, I won't go into the, all the details, but it's just to show you kind of the ideology and the values. And I think that you and I were like met for the first time around that time. And then, I think so. you think, yeah. <laughs> and then from there, like I was involved in like, yes, part of like incredible organization, rethinking the national health care system in a country that I shall not name. And then from there, like going on the continent of Africa and rethinking like national public administration system as tool for emancipation or like, you know, rethinking of societies that have been like stigmatized and traumatized by, you know, exploitation, extractive policies, colonization and the like. And so like, you know, the journey like really started from there. I think that like from organization that I was partnering with brought one piece of the puzzle. But not all of it. And for me, like in order to change society, you need many different elements in concert, right? You need urban planning. You need the physical space, physical infrastructure. You need to look at like policies and like program initiatives, the rule of law and legislation. And you need to look at the private sector and culture. And it's only by bringing all of these different dynamics together that you can promote, you know, I don't like the word sustainable because it's been used so much. But you can actually like start like creating societies that, you know, can go in a positive and more adaptive and more responsive trajectory. So I built CODA with that in mind, meaning that this organization, CODA, could, you know, specialize in urban planning, you know, civic engineering, but also in economy, you know, philosophy, public policy in general, you know. And also the other element of like the private sector and culture. So that's why I built Coda, you know. And from there, we've been able to have like incredible projects um, that have been fascinating. That has been from like rethinking like economic models, you know, in regions um, in the United States, from like building think tanks for head of states. And then again, using the think tank as a vehicle to like promote, you know, like new ideas new like ideologies, new possibilities on the ground. So yeah, so now we're working in the design of new spaces, new societies. We're working with the Africa Center, for example, to rethink, you know, like to reposition like black people, African in the diaspora as the leading thinkers, you know, and doers and, and implementers of the world and of society of tomorrow. And I'll stop I mean, there. I keep on going as you can. No, no, no. There's a lot to unpack there. And I didn't even want to touch Cody yet. You know, the journey was a big piece of that. And a couple of things that I pulled out from there that I'd want to talk about, which actually will lead us into Coda, is, you know, there's a lot of focus when I started doing like a look at your work and diving into it. There's a focus on this idea of fluidity and of being able to be more adaptive to space. You kind of touched on that as a part of your professional journey. And when you're kind of sharing the beginning parts of this and kind of talking about having that immigrant experience growing up in Paris, you know, I have an immigrant experience growing up here in New York, similar, you know, Caribbean parents, you know, all that kind of stuff. Listeners are well aware of my story, but it got me thinking about that the fluidity of lived experience when you are an immigrant, right? When you are considered another, quote unquote, as it pertains to the dominant majority population. And talking about your music career, you know, another piece that will come that I'll touch on a little later, but 
you know, I want to bring that element into it as well, because, you know, as someone who is an appreciator of music, not an actual musician, there is obviously the learned experience of music, which requires practice and a sort of absorption of what has come before. But those who innovate within music take those foundations and then do something else with them, right? So you have all of these experiences that seem to lend itself to this concept of fluidity. So I want to get, you know, some thoughts on that from an experience of growing up and having those things in your life. And then we're going to get to how fluidity pertains to CODA. Yes. No, I think that you very well. Uh, You know, societies always evolve. I think that like as a tool of oppression and maintaining the status quo, we've been taught that system are statics, that things are the way they are, that rules are the way they are. And like when you are like from a minority group or even low income, you realize that the system and its rules doesn't work for you, right, by design. And so like in order to emancipate yourself or in order to survive, you know, you have this need to push the boundary of that rigidity. When you're an immigrant on top of that, you have to because you are navigating many different places, right? So the idea of being static is antithetical. Sorry, I don't know. No, that's right. (laughs) To like your live experience because, you know, you are like, what is your home as a specific like set of codes and values, right? And then like when you go into like the place where the majority is, it's a different set of codes that you had to like, you know, understand and adapt to it or not. That's a different like question. But not only that, but also as an immigrant, you are the result of like the social dynamic of spaces. Why are we immigrant? Because we left our place. Why did we leave like our place of origin? Because of like demographic shift, because of like political traumas, because, you know, of like also in a positive way, the pursuit of like different ideals as well. And so we are constantly in movement, right? Because the places that we are from are like the societies are in movement as well. And so like for me, the idea is that like, you know, we are having to limit ourselves to very strict structures when everything is just about, you know, movement and dynamism doesn't make any sense to me. It becomes like the expression of control, you know, and not only control for if it's control to like benefit the many in an equitable way based on a very thorough ethical framework or social contract, you know, that constant would be healthy. Yet, you know, usually just to maintain a status quo that just benefits a few. So beyond, you know, like that sociological and this trajectory as like immigrant perspective, from an identity perspective now, like, you know, I think that from a reinvent, like we have to reinvent ourselves, right? Like not before, you know, I just want to give them justice, but, you know, until like baby boomers, people had one career that they kept, right? Throughout their life. Absolutely. Now, because of like globalization and many different, you know, factors that I'm not going to cite now, like we are forced to rethink our career. We are such like we are forced to rethink, you know, our interests in order to survive in like very increasingly changing, rapidly changing world. Of course, tech is a big part of that. And so like we have to be fluid in terms of like how we define ourselves, how we, you know, like survive in like this economic system and context. And like lastly, as you know, 
is a concept also of like gender and even sexuality. I think that, you know, before, like there was like this binary that had been imposed, you know, of like female, male, you know, and this like patriarchal type of structure that like really created some uh, categorical, you know, categories. <laughs> but now like yeah, there is a rethinking of like, what is a feminine? What is a masculine? How do we like decode or hack the script of like what society has demanded our rule to be? And those ideas are, as you said, they are dynamic mm-hmm. and they also exist in different places at the same time, you know, to pull out the masculine and feminine. They can be physical descriptions based on phenotype and things like that, but they also come with values, right? Like there are certain values that are considered masculine or certain values that are considered feminine. And those often, there's a reason why, there's a story behind why we've chosen to attach certain weight to one thing versus another. And that's a constant shifting within our society. So I think even when we think we're discussing concepts that might appear binary in the modern day, we're not even having a new conversation. Nope. They've had these conversations for quite a while. Exactly. No, I agree. I agree. And I think that, you know, what is very interesting to me is understanding root causes right? And you uncover root causes when you deconstruct. And so like the more categories there are, the more like, you know, status quo or like very defined concepts there are, the more they're hiding, you know, underlying complex sphere. (laughs) And for me, in order to like really create structures or even create discourse that are productive, that are constructive, we need to address root causes. I know it's a very like um, basic analogy, but like when you're sick, you know, either like you take Advil to like help with the symptoms, which, you know, you don't fix the disease, or you go like deeper and you understand holistically what are the root causes of your ailment. So I see societies and I even see our psychology in a similar way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a useful analogy, right? It's direct. It's one that most people can relate to, you know, as we've started to unpack a little bit of this conversation, you know, in my notes, I wrote down, because I've been playing around with this idea of limits and boundaries and how they connect or potentially connect to ideas of fluidity. You know, it would seem that they would be in conflict with one another on some level, but it sounds like there's room for within limits and boundaries to maybe plug in some fluidity. Like, what do you think about that as a useful organizing tool or not? No, I love that. It's a fascinating conversation. So there are many angles to that. I think that like they are constant, right? So I think that we need to like, limits can be seen as a a negative, right? Because they're being used in that way. But constraints are actually like a framework that help understanding a reality. So I don't see constraint as negative. I also see constants as not a negative, but yet other limits, I don't know. But there are, you know, um, some areas that are more difficult to be challenged, correct? So for example, like I talk a lot about social contract. A social contract is a set of values and principles among people within a space, okay? We can go deeper on that, but just like the concept for now. A social contract should be challenged over time because like people evolve, people, you know, we just talked about the fact that we are emancipating from this binary type of concept, 
right? So like values evolve, yet, you know, like ethical framework principles that we need to uphold in order to like live together in tolerance, in safety, and to ensure well-being are constant, right? So these, you know, can be kind of like the blueprint, right? But in what has no limit, though, is like the means that we use to bring about this social contract, you see? And I think that like, we've been taught to like, actually that is limited, right? So like the ways in which we can like exercise our right to build safe, to like achieve well-being, because I'm not going to go into the idea of happiness, it's a different topic, to be able to like exchange with one another in a good way, for lack of better words, you know? The means to do that shouldn't be limited, you know? They should always be like, we sought to like be even more optimal, you know, and optimizing our well-being. So that's the thing. Another way to look at it is in terms of like talking about limits, it's the idea of like formality and informality. We know that social change and social evolution is always like coming from like this spark that challenges the status quo. Right. So you have like a system that is formalized. Right. And I speak in a very conceptual way, I know, but it's formalized. Yet individuals in the system are going to find like shortcut. They're going to find, you know, like way to make it more palatable or easier for them, you know, to use. And so they're creating like a series of new ways of new initiative or new strategies around the system that are actually optimizing, you know, this formal system or institution before formalizing it. It's informal, right? And it bursts then to like more normalized rules. So for me, the idea of like formal, informal, you know, and limit boundaries is always like this like dynamism, what is and what can be. And I love that you brought up that point about the social contract and particularly well-being because I literally lifted a quote out of the essay that you provided that I read before we got on the air that's designed to talk about. And the essay is going to be in the show notes. So we're going to make sure that, you know, folks, as they engage with this episode, have an opportunity to go through it and read it because it dives very deeply into these ideas of fluidity as we're starting to like pull into them right now. And the quote, which I'll read, because it really stuck out to me or jumped out at me that you say societies are assessed on their capacity to ensure their members' well-being. And you touched on that remark, and I had a little question mark in there because I do agree with that holistically as a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, my work is focused on those very same ideals. And yet it seems like as a standard, we have more capacity than probably we've ever had in on one way as human beings. But yet in many ways, and I'll speak to the United States specifically, right? We are failing at the ability to ensure our members' well-being. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like an opportunity on one hand, but there's also an entrenchment to limit the ability for some people to really have a well-being. So I want to leave some space for your thoughts on that. Oh, yes. I could not agree more. And I think that that is like the basic of our conversation. I think that like core reason for like you and I to even ask this question or do the work that we do is because like we are very much aware that 
our well-being, you know, or the well-being of our communities has never been taken into consideration or like actually held as a priority in a social agenda or in a political agenda. So that's definitely true. I think that like COVID, for example, has like showcased something quite interesting is that it showcased what well-being is not, right? And all the ways in which systems are unable to promote what well-being is I'm like, you know, for example, like, yeah, health, access to health. The fact that like when a little virus, you know, appears, financial system are collapsing, you know, economy are collapsing. What has been like model of safety and security for individuals are collapsing as well. So we just showcase the way in which like the United States, but also like, you know, some Western societies have not upholding their social contract but at the same time you know like i think that like the social contract of the u.s is nebulous enough <laughs> for, <laughs> for the commitment to be as nebulous you know by design when you and i connected the first time many years ago it was around the idea of participatory design correct and the fact that you know beyond democracy because then again you know like between theory and practice there is a big gap but that individual should it is ethical that individuals express what their well-being is and should be and are like invested in citing, in developing, in contesting, in challenging what these indicators of well-being are. I know that, for example, in Scandinavian countries or in more homogeneous societies, they're able to like create a social contract and uphold it quite easily because there is a lot of homogeneity. In societies that are more complex, that are more pluralist, and this is, you know, one of the values that I defend is pluralism. These, like, the formulation of the social contract, the formulation of, like, what well-being means for different cultures and different groups, but then creating, like, you know, overarching values that actually, like, you know, accommodate, like, this diversity I think that this is what societies are grappling with now. And this is where like, I am basing my work. A very hard task, you know, because it's more complex, but it's fascinating. And it is the right thing to do. <laughs> Humble, entitled. <laughs> no, absolutely, right? Because this is a conversation that happens quite often in the sense that, you know, we have a society and we tell ourselves stories. Right. So I won't even go to the society piece. We have these stories that we tell ourselves. And even in American framework, if people are discussing the opportunity to have a different type of social contract, they'll often cite Scandinavian countries, right? They'll say, oh, well, why can't we have the social welfare systems of a Sweden or a Finland or Norway or whatever, whichever, pick whichever one you want, Denmark or whatever, right? And I agree with that because I agree with the concept of having a robust social welfare system and which to me is just another kind of more wonky word for a social contract. Yeah. Right. right. And but yet you see as those nations become a little bit more complex as people who do not fit the traditional mode of what we think of as a Nordic person, there's pushback against mm -hmm these ideas of social contract, even in countries that have a long history of them. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on Scandinavian social and economic systems. You probably are more than me. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think, you know, how do we, all of us, when, yes, we are in our individual nation states, 
whatever that might look like. But the fluidity Mm -hmm. that started this conversation as we face pandemics like COVID-19, as we face climate change, you know, as we face any number of human-made catastrophe where the movement of humans is fluid. You know, the same stories that got your family to France and got mine to the United States, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to see an increasing of that sort of complexity. And some places might be handling it better than others, but more and more our social contract has to start to take into effect the planet, right? There is no safe haven, despite the fact that the thing might be happening someplace far away, the fluidity is going to bring those challenges to a wide variety of places. So I'm, I'm curious as we're locked into still a nation state model, is there room for another model? And what do you think about that? And then we're going to get to more to the essay, I promise. <laughs> it's okay. We don't have to like, go too deep into the essay. Yes, I think that the concept of nation state, you know, should be rethought and should be, you know, like, it's, and again, it's man-made, it's a system, so it can be unpacked, it can be rethought, and it can be redesigned. For me, then again, like to your point, it's like a limitation, and it's like a commonly universally accepted limitation. We live in a safe nation state. You know, I think that like we all know that the continent of Africa has completely suffered because of like the imposition of like this borders and boundaries, you know, and that is like, you can see that throughout the global south. Then again, for me, the idea is like, before thinking about the form, we need to think about the substance, right? So social contract and what as a group, we can define what that group is. What do we stand for? What, how do we define well-being? How are we like, what values do we want to like uphold you know, for ourselves and among ourselves should be what dictates the form that the society should take. What we do know for sure is that we need infrastructures, right? And infrastructure can't like transcend this limitation of nation state because infrastructure are the manifestation of a social contract. So that's like me beginning to answer your questions. There are many different societies that are being sought through. You have like also the privatization of a lot of things and the extreme wealth of individual. Now like individuals are creating like cities and societies, you know, and like just taking it upon themselves to like start thinking about these new models. You have regions that are like collaborating with one another. You have also like island, like yours, for example, congratulations, you know. That is like, no, we said no to the imperial rule, you know? Yeah. Interesting though, and that's like, I don't know if it's very much on topic, but for a lot of spaces that have been subject to the imperial rule, regaining independence and sovereignty. So going through the route of a nation state is a logical and very emancipatory next step. So that's why like, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't oppose the notion of nation state categorically, Mm -hmm. I think that each group should decide what makes the most sense to them. What, you know, structure and form makes the more, like, you know, sense to them. And that touches on another thing is that, you know, we were like talking about Scandinavia and America. The West is a place of trauma, right? Is a place of many layers. Is a place of like many complexity. And so without being able to really look at these and like redesign from that, you know, a core, you know, that actually is being addressed, 
then like no infrastructure can withstand anything. When you talk about this recreating, this reimagining, this pulling apart, there's a key conceit in that that can see things that aren't readily available, mm-hmm. right? And COVID, you know, not to use the obvious example of us having to go through something bad, I don't think we should need like the worst event for us to manifest new realities, right? New realities have the potential to be manifested in moments of optimism rather than in moments of despair. But it seems like that idea of imagination or reimagining or reclaiming decolonizing, all of these are part of the same stew of creating something new. No, I agree. And, you know, I want to like retouch on critical infrastructure um, Mm -hmm. to to answer to that, is that we rarely talk about process. And to your point, we talk about, you know, what we can see, right? There is culture and then there is what you can see. And it is the invisible end that usually has the most power. And it's been very hard, you know, to define what this invisible hand is. And I think that like I'm using like critical infrastructure to start identifying what that is. Finance, financial policies, money, you know, is a connective tissue. Energy, you know is a connective tissue. These areas are functional and society depends on these, yet they are understood or they are only in the end of the few. So it is by starting to naming them that we can start bringing more equity or more visibility into what's going on. Yeah, there's an uncovering, right? And I think those spaces, particularly finance, they remain siloed. Mm -hmm. Right. They are very much part of the public discourse, but people would consider themselves if they're not a finance person, if they're not in those businesses to not truly factor their process into their work. Yes. Yet they're responsible for everything. Yet finance, you know, is one of the main fuel of societies. It's through finance that like policy are given priorities. It's through finance that culture is disseminated or not. It's through finance, you know that cities or places look the way they are. It's some people who make decisions at this level. And the thing is that, you know, and that's something that I've uncovered like recently, I think that there's been this binary around like, either you work in the public sector or either like you talk about society, you know, and the public good. And so you're like, you know, belong to like that left that, you know, that we cannot define anymore. Or, you know, you work in finance. You cannot have like this understanding of both. The two are not interrelated, you know? And I think that this has been one of like, of the main cause of, you know, inequity and the lack of functionality of our society is not being able to see how the two are interrelated and are interdependent of one another, at least for the public, you know? I'm not saying that no one knows, obviously, you know, but the public has not been made aware of how like these two are, you know, playing with one another. Absolutely. And I think there are many things about the essay and how it informs your work that was important, but you go to great lengths to connect so many of these spheres and give them a roadmap, so to speak. And I really want to encourage, again, readers, when we post this, to spend some time with these ideas, with this work, because I remember there's a graphic that connects like space travel, 
I forget the other two and I don't want to scroll through. It's open, but I don't want to scroll through it right now. But it connects things in a way that you wouldn't necessarily see them. And I'm really interested in space type things for a lot of reasons. One, I'm a complete nerd. The second is I remember a different kind of public conversation around things like space travel, right? It was this combined thing that got everybody focused and connected in a way that was toward something community-based. And now it's become private sector individuals pursuing these agendas that they might sprinkle, you know, a little bit of the public good, but it's primarily, it feels more ego-driven, right? And your your chart of that took us through some of the thinking, not in many words, but in sort of a loose connective tissue and how those things combine. No, actually, you know, it's interesting. Well, thank you for that. And yes, you know, like it's a new conceptual framework that we're pushing forward and it's like a living, fluid, you know, inquisitive and inquiry, right? And yeah. It's a framework and what is going to come about, you know, is going to evolve over time. But I really want, you know, to provide new ways for individuals to look at societies. Space travel, actually, in the space industry, is an area in which I could, uh, is very, is like, you know, like looking into and starting to like do some work into because it is like very much about society building, you know, yeah. and it touches, to your point, our collective imaginary. It touches access, it touches like manufacturing, it touches values, it touches imperialism, you know. Incredible resources. Yeah. Right. All put to bear in much the same way that the Dutch East Indian Company put their motivations to bear. Right. That got many of us here and, and other companies <laughs> as well. I want to leave time for us to jump into the two lag segments of the show. We touched on so many things, yeah. but the first of those sections is off the dome and off the dome are just some rapid fire questions. They're meant to be tongue in cheek and fun. And so the first one touches on your musicianship. So I wanted to, like I said, I was going to get back to it. (laughs) So I want to spend some time with it right now. So you're a concert pianist. Obviously, playing music has been a major informative part of your life. For the lay person, the person who is a music person but might not know that much about piano, Mm -hmm. where would you tell them to start in terms of listening and accessing great works of concert pianists? Well, I think that I would direct anyone to Beethoven. I think that Beethoven also, like, you know, now it's been more formalized that he is like black. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Shout out to the brother Beethoven. Exactly. Shout out to brother Beethoven. I think that his music is so incredibly powerful, universal, elevating and profoundly human and so complex. I don't know. I don't have enough adjective to talk about Beethoven. I think that, you know, and also it's through Beethoven that I discovered music and I discovered and I touched beauty to such a point that I decided to dedicate my entire life to it. So Beethoven is powerful. So I would, I think that Beethoven as a composer is whom I would recommend to anyone, people who are like very well-versed in classical music, to people who are not at all. Beethoven, yes, hands down. Okay. I love all other composers, but Beethoven is like my number one. Yeah, at the moment. Perfect. He's your Jay-Z. <laughs> I also love my Jay-Z. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about advice because you mentioned when you were thinking about coming to the United States to go to school and you had, you know, now this knowledge of Ivy Lee comes in and you use the term the impossible journey. 
So with all of that in mind, it doesn't need to be framed in that, but it did make me think about it. What is one piece of advice that you received in your impossible journey up to this point that really has stuck with you? That's a good one. But the thing is that like they're not in English. So I want to... <laughs> so there is one that is, you know, that the dignity of people has more power than the force of an empire. And that is something that, you know, I believe in very wholeheartedly. And I remind myself of all the time, but it should be in Spanish. So, you know, the other one, you know, I don't know. I think that like, you know, like also people of color, we always force to, all, you know, to like, uh, to challenge everything, to like have this rhetoric and this narrative of the impossible, you know, and it does fuel us to do extraordinary things, but it's also like a heavy burden, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I just yeah. want to put it out there. We must do the impossible because there is no other choice, but we need to be aware that we are doing the impossible and we need to like really celebrate ourselves for that, you know? There is another thing that like my father told me, but that's in French. Can I say it in French? You can say it in French if you translate it for me afterwards. Well, yes. À vaincre sans péril, on triomphe sans gloire. So if you succeed without difficulties or without, you know, danger in a very responsible way, you won't succeed with glory. And so for me, that's also like, you know, a sentence that I keep in mind a lot. That you need to expose yourself, what you're not comfortable with, in order to like achieve the extraordinary. And lastly, I think that we're all creators. So as long as we can imagine it, we can do it. And the imagination has no limits, to your point, you know. And so by being able to push the boundaries of your imagination, you can actually like start manifesting it without, with, as a reality. Awesome. I want to get to the last off the dome, which is, is it kind of takes us through space and time a little bit. And it's a question that I asked a couple of other guests and people really responded to it. So they've been like, oh, that's a great question. So I've started to like incorporate it a little bit more into my off the dome, which is, this is a, a would you rather type of question. So would you rather travel back in time and meet your ancestors or go to the future and meet your descendants? That's an awesome question indeed, like really. So full disclosure, my father passed away like uh, maybe two years ago. Like it's very recent. So like I think that that's tenting a bit, you know, by discord because there is nothing that I would wish more than being able to hug him again, you know? Mm. So in this specific moment in time, I think that if I could, even though he would be mad at me for doing that, I would go back to hug him. But in the absolute, my ancestors have done the work. You and I are doing the work for future generation to be able to like live a better life, to prosper. And so I don't need to go back, right? The goal mm -hmm. is not for me to go back. The goal is for all of us to go forward, right? And so I think that I'll be more curious to see how the future generation and my descendants, you know, what they've been able to create, that being, you know, wonderful or horrible, but being able to see some of the continuing fruit, you know, Mm -hmm. of like my lineage is something that I think I will be more interested in uh, in looking at. That's awesome. And um, I'm sorry for the loss of your dad. You know, two years is two years, 10 years, 20 years. That's always recent, no matter when it happens. I guess it's a sad truce. Yeah. 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 I want to get us to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. 
Mm-hmm. And the drop is an opportunity for you and I to share anything at all with our listeners. So, you know, the drop can be a piece of music, a book. I always describe it as this sort of intellectual morsel, which makes it sound more serious than it needs to be. So I'm ready with my drop. I can go first. You can go first, however you want to do it. I can go first. You should, you know. I think that what has been inspiring me the most recently is this idea of multidimensionality, right? And so there is an individual, his name is Leon Ford. He's a brother that has been doing some incredible work. And he's an individual who's been shot by the police, you know, and then like sued the police department and won. And his entire story and journey and the way in which you know, his message, the way in which he's healing, the way in which he's thinking, you know, about the sociological dynamic, you know, of race and of economic status is very powerful to me. And so, like, he's my drop. <laughs> okay, that's, a, that's an amazing drop. And I'm going to look into more of his journey and more of his work. Um, sounds amazing. My drop for this week is a film. It's a documentary that just came out on Netflix very recently, or at least at the very least you can watch it on Netflix. And it's called My Octopus Teacher. And, you know, I don't want to spend too much time giving it away, but it's a, you know, wonderful film that kind of serves as a meditation for the way we relate to the natural world, the way we relate to each other through a relationship that forms over the course of the film with, as you would guess from the title, an octopus. So I won't say much more than that because it really is a very touching film documentary. And again, it's called My Octopus Teacher and it's available on Netflix. This has been great. You know, we managed to have a conversation that took us in a lot of different places that was very thought-provoking not meandering in total, but meandering, just the right degree of meandering. So I want to thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. Thank you so much, Phil. And thank you also for like, you know, the way in which you are engaging your me, you know, and everyone and you're pushing everyone to think deeper and better. And I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for that. No, thank you. I'll take all praise and gratitude as it's delivered. So this has been a great episode and thank you again for being on the show. Thank you, Phil. It's been a pleasure having Garance Choco join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter at FarflungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.